If you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 8. We've paused from our series in Revelation as we're walking through that book this year. We're at the, about the halfway point there. We reached the end of chapter 11. And so for the summer, uh, we're, uh, we're exploring basically gospel conversations uh, in the New Testament. So several scenes from the Gospels and the book of Acts uh, where we see the gospel of the kingdom being proclaimed and the various ways that people respond to that proclamation and, uh, and, and seeking to equip ourselves with principles and practices and truths that might help us in our own effort to bear witness to the kingdom of God. So that we're calling the series Words of Life based on Peter's declaration to Christ at the end of John chapter 6 when he said, do you also want to leave? And Peter said, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so it's the, the gospel of the, the kingdom that was indeed the centerpiece of Jesus' ministry on earth. He, was, he went about preaching the good news of the kingdom. And then that became the centerpiece of the apostles' ministry in the book of Acts. They went everywhere proclaiming the kingdom of God. And it indeed has been handed down to us, to the church throughout the generations, as our mission. As Jesus called us to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations and teaching them to observe all that he commanded. And so we work for his kingdom and we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. So last week we looked at uh, the account in John chapter 4 of Jesus and a Samaritan woman. And today we look at Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Very briefly, because we haven't been in the book of Acts, uh, the context for this story is uh, the Holy Spirit has come. So Jesus told the the apostles to wait uh, as he ascended into heaven. He would send the Spirit to them. And the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and they began proclaiming the gospel. The church is growing. uh, Sinners are being converted. And now we actually saw in Acts chapter 8 a young man named Saul who began uh, persecuting the church, And he stood by as uh, one of the, the, the first sort of deacons, proto-deacons in Acts chapter 6, named Stephen, was stoned to death. And Saul approved and sort of oversaw that. And so now this persecution of Christians, kind of under the leadership of Saul, has caused the church uh, to scatter. It's caused Christians to begin to spread out throughout the the known world at the time. And of course, the effect of that is as they go, they take the gospel with them. And so the book of Acts in chapter 8 gives attention to Philip, who is one of the uh, seven deacons that was appointed in Acts chapter 6 and so at the Jerusalem church. And so it's Philip that gets the spotlight for uh, just a chapter uh, in, in Acts chapter 8. And so we follow him as he ministers in Samaria, preaching the gospel, uh, and then God is going to give him a new assignment that we'll read about today. So starting in chapter 8, verse 26, we'll read the story in uh, sections and break it down as we go. Verses 26 through 29. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, 
a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So we'll stop there for just a minute and talk about this context, the setting, right? So the story has been set up here with these few verses, and there's lots of little pieces of information given to us in this kind of bullet-pointed list almost in these first few verses. The first is that that Philip receives a, a divine command from an angel. So not too many of us probably have been visited by an angel and given specific commands from God. So I wouldn't say that this is to be the norm or what we should expect uh, that God is going to do. Uh, But nevertheless, that's how he communicates to Philip. He sends an angel to him and he says, go to the south from Jerusalem to Gaza, right? Just begin going to the south. And so he rises and he goes. Gaza would have been uh, the last sort of watering hole, right? The last place where there's a body of water for the the feeding of camels and and people uh, before you would enter the desert to the south and head down into Egypt. And so that's the the road is going down in that direction and Philip begins traveling this road. And he comes upon an Ethiopian eunuch and there's uh, a, a lot of details here given us about him. So we recognize, first of all, of course, that he's from Ethiopia, which is probably more like current day Sudan uh, near Egypt. So it, it's a it's northeastern Africa. And so there's this Ethiopian who is clearly then a Gentile, right? This is not a Jewish person. So we're we're already beginning to press beyond the, the boundaries of sort of ethnic uh, uh, Israel and the, the boundaries of the old covenant. And so he's he's and he's distant from Jerusalem, right? So he lives in Ethiopia, modern day Sudan, and that's a good Distance to travel. In fact, uh, it probably took him a few months to make this journey. And so he's come a long way to Jerusalem, and now he's making the journey back. It tells us that he is a eunuch. And the polite way to describe that is that it is a man who has been made unable to reproduce. And generally, the purpose for that was to keep him sort of as a loyal a servant to a particular monarch because if he could not have his own children, then he would not be interested in sort of grabbing power for himself because he could not have a dynasty, right? So his children wouldn't be on the throne because he can't have any children. And so that was a common practice that they would sort of uh, just remove that threat, the threat of sort of usurping of power. And so they were commonly the, the men who served Kings and even queens, like in this case, uh, were commonly made eunuchs for that purpose. And so we recognize that as uh, something that's true about this man. And so, and, and it, it's obvious to us to, to think for just even a moment about that, that that is deeply broken and sad. And there, there comes a deep, probably shame and sorrow in this man's life that it doesn't tell us about, but it doesn't take a lot of reading between the lines to empathize a bit with this man's condition. We learn that he is the treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia. Okay, so he's a, he's a man in a high position. He is in charge of all of the, the, the money and the belongings of the Ethiopian queen, Candace. So he's a trusted man, right? So he's a, he is a high-level government official. He's well-trusted by Candace and the Ethiopians. 
And so he's a man in a high position. And we learn, most importantly, I think, to our text today, that he is a God-fearer. So he's not a Jew, uh, but he nevertheless has a heart to worship Yahweh. And so he's traveled to Jerusalem to worship because that would be uh, the, the, the pattern of, of worship, right? This pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship there. And as he's traveling back from this worship pilgrimage, he's reading the Bible, right? He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. So that, that sort of introduces us to this, uh, to this man that the Lord is going to have Philip minister to. And so here, here's the first principle. I'm going to give you four of these today. I think I gave you four last week too. There's no, that's nothing magic. It's not always going to be four, I don't think. But there's four principles that I see here. The first principle sort of gospel proclamation that I see here is this. God sends his people where their witness is most needed. God sends his people where their witness is most needed. Clearly, Philip was already doing good work. He was in Samaria preaching the gospel. But God had a specific place for him to be, a specific person for him to engage with. And so he redirected him, go along this road. And and the Lord knew in his sovereignty and his foreknowledge that he would meet up with this man from Ethiopia who was traveling back from Jerusalem. And so if we consider that this Ethiopian is somebody who's outside the bounds right, of Jewish worship and identity without you know, teaching and instruction and knowledge of, uh, of God's word, but he has a heart to know and worship God, then it becomes all the more clear to us that God's commitment in this passage is to make sure that somebody gets to him with the gospel, right? He needed somebody to tell him the story of Jesus, to tell him the good news about the crucified and risen Christ. And so God sends Philip his way. To whom might God intend to send you with the good news about Jesus? Is there someone in your life who's outside the faith, but maybe with a heart to know God or or a curiosity about the faith who simply needs someone to guide them. I would suggest and challenge that we should even begin praying that God would show us people like that or bring us to people like that. Is there somebody who needs to hear the good news who maybe is actually pursuing, maybe seeking him, maybe asking questions. Lord, bring me to a person who needs to be guided toward the gospel. And perhaps we should be asking ourselves as a church, right? To whom, Lord, would you send us? What person or persons or group of people in our community or in our world are looking, waiting, leaning in and simply need someone to guide them? And who, how could we fulfill that need? So God sends his people where their witness is most needed. And so we have to have our eyes open to that question. Lord, where are we needed most? Lord, where are the places in our lives, in our community, where there are people who need to hear and who may be listening with an open ear? Let's continue the story in verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, 
do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. And this is from Isaiah chapter 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This is a key question in this story when Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? He is reading the Bible. He is reading from Isaiah and in the providence and wisdom and kindness of God, he is reading a passage from Isaiah that could not be more clear in its pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, the one who would fulfill that very prophecy. But Philip starts with this question, do you understand? Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian is all too happy to acknowledge to him, I I don't, I just need somebody to help me. How could I understand this unless somebody guides me? And so beginning with this scripture, Philip explained to him the good news about Jesus. Here's the second principle in our gospel proclamation. The Bible is a powerful evangelistic tool. The Bible is a powerful evangelistic tool. The word tool might be a little bit too crude or simplistic for it. But the idea here is to push back strongly against a sort of prevailing Christian cultural idea that maybe the Bible is too outdated to bring up in conversations with unbelievers. There are prominent pastors and leaders who make such claims. We should not say the Bible says, we should not point people to scriptures because they don't believe it, right? The argument is, if they don't believe the Bible, then it doesn't do any good to bring them to the Bible or to show them the Bible. But I think in contrast to that, the witness of scripture is that God speaks to the heart through his word. And so if we intend, if we hope to reach the hearts of unbelievers with the gospel, then we must show them his word. The word of God has a a clear and important and central place in our evangelism. And even more sort of specifically, particularly here, don't underestimate the effectiveness of just reading the Bible together. Because that's what essentially is going on here. This is what some may call a one-to-one Bible reading. There's a book by David Helm, short little book, really helpful sort of introduction to how to engage with unbelievers and young believers and mature believers, right? It's just sort of a, a Christian discipleship tool to simply read the Bible together and talk about it. And so he gives you some tips and practices about how you might go about doing that and some of the benefits of it. But that's essentially what's going on here. You have this Ethiopian eunuch who is reading from Isaiah and he doesn't understand it. And so the Lord brings him Philip. Do you understand what you're reading? No. How can someone guide me? And so he invites him up. That's also key. He invites him up. Philip doesn't say, let me come like obnoxiously bang you over the head with the Bible. He asks and the eunuch invites him up and they just begin talking about what they're reading. They're reading the scroll of Isaiah together and Philip beginning with that scripture 
tells him the good news about Jesus. Don't underestimate the power, the effectiveness of just reading the Bible with somebody and helping them to understand it. I've seen firsthand, I know others in our church have seen firsthand the effectiveness, the impact that it can have on someone to simply read God's word together with an unbeliever or a new believer and to try to help them understand it. It can have significant impact. Indeed, it is where God does his best work through his own word. And so as a challenge for for each of us, pray that God would show you someone in your life or bring someone into your life if you can't think of one who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you've identified that person, simply invite them to read the Bible with you and to talk about it. Hey, would you be willing to meet with me for a few weeks to read the Bible together and talk about it? It could be that simple, that unimposing, that non-threatening. There's a book about church ministry called The Trellis and the Vine. Here's something that they say about uh, the practice of Bible reading. It says, imagine if all Christians as a normal part of their discipleship were caught up in a web of regular Bible reading, not only digging into the word privately, but reading it with their children before bed, with their spouse over breakfast, with a non-Christian colleague at work once a week over lunch, with a new Christian for follow-up once a fortnight for mutual encouragement, and with a mature Christian friend once a month for mutual encouragement. It would be a chaotic web of personal relationships, prayer, and Bible reading. More a movement than a program. But at another level, it would be profoundly simple and within reach of all. Just putting the reading of the Bible into our regular practice, not only privately, but with others. And even as an evangelistic strategy to invite those who do not yet know Christ into a simple Bible reading relationship. How might the Lord use that? I also love that he said fortnight. Once a fortnight. Cool. So I'd recommend that book by David Helm I mentioned earlier, one-to-one Bible reading. Uh, really uh, Really good resource there just to help us to think through that. So we see Philip simply joining the Ethiopian in his chariot to read and explain the Bible. And it doesn't say that he went into great depth and detail and gave this lengthy commentary on the prophet Isaiah. It says he started with that scripture and then told the story about Jesus. Right. So the point is, whatever we're reading in the Bible, how does this connect to Christ? How does this glimpse the gospel? And so we we have to learn some skills and strategies to to connect passages of the Bible to the overarching story of God's redemption through Christ and point people toward the gospel. The Bible is a powerful evangelistic tool. The story continues in verse 36 as we see the Ethiopian's response to this reading. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So the eunuch apparently believes 
All right, so he's been, we don't get a step-by-step verbatim report on what exactly Philip said and how, what exactly the, the, the Ethiopian uh, responded with or what questions he had. But we get to the point where they come across water and he says, it's time. What prevents me from being baptized? Which also kind of implies that baptism was a part of Philip's introduction to Jesus in the gospel. Like a, a, a believing response to the gospel includes the, the sort of public proclamation, the public testimony of baptism. That's an, an interesting detail there as well. And I think the very presence of water is another nod in the story to God's providence and the, the, the timing of this. Because they're in this desert road heading out into Egypt on the way to Gaza, which was the last place where there would be a body of water. And just at the moment that the story has been told and explained and the Ethiopian has come to belief, hey, look. We happen to be in a body of water, right? The Lord is clearly at work even in these small details. Now, one sort of side note here, because what we see of baptism in this passage is a little bit abnormal. Uh, It's not the sort of normal pattern of what we practice. Um, And indeed, the pattern and teaching of the New Testament seems to tie baptism to membership in a local church body. That seems to be uh, the sort of normative pattern. But this is a new age. This is the first time that the gospel is beginning to expand out beyond the, the boundaries of Jerusalem uh, and Judea, right? And so it's going into other territories and Gentile peoples are beginning to believe. So it makes sense for this Ethiopian to be baptized apart from such an assembly because there isn't one yet, right? There's no first Ethiopian Baptist church for him to go to and become a member of and be baptized. It doesn't exist yet. He seems to be the first convert among his region and people group and so naturally his baptism occurs sort of outside the boundaries of a church but what is highlighted here clearly is the connection between baptism and personal faith and repentance right so in baptism a new christian is is portraying as publicly as possible right this is not very public there's philip and there's whoever his sort of servant, uh, the, the Ethiopian servants were who were driving the chariot and whatever crew he had with him, right? Because he commands somebody to stop driving the chariot so that he could go be baptized. So there's somebody here. It's, it's as public as it can be, right? It, a new Christian is portraying as publicly as possible his or her union with Christ in burial and resurrection because they believe the gospel. And so he's believed the gospel and now... As a part of his believing response to the gospel, Philip baptizes him in this body of water. And so the story ends as you would hope that it would. And of course, all stories don't end in the way that you hope it will. And every gospel conversation won't end in somebody repenting and trusting and saying, okay, can I get baptized right now? Probably won't always end like that, right? But nevertheless, in, in this case, we see the power of God at work. And indeed, this would be the third principle I'd point you toward. God is at work in those who believe. God is at work in those who believe. And if you think just for a moment about all the things that God has been doing, the, to- the soil that God has been tilling, the details that God has been aligning You can see very clearly what what God has been up to. So sometime prior to our text, where we're introduced to this Ethiopian, uh, God has drawn the heart of this man to himself. 
as one who fears God and is willing to make this long journey to Jerusalem and back for the purpose of worship. And who's interested in his word and reading from the prophet Isaiah, right? God explicitly commissions Philip to go south and then even more specifically to join the Ethiopian's chariot. Okay, there, see that guy over there? Go, talk to him, join his chariot. God's providence is on display in the particular Bible text he's reading in Isaiah 53 because he could have been in some obscure passage that would have been a little bit taken a little bit more effort for Philip to what well okay let's connect this prophet to that period of history and then here's how that story works okay and see you see how that has to do with Jesus oh my god you can't get more plain than Isaiah 53 and the servant song uh, of 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 that passage we're so well acquainted with some of the, the verses from, from that passage. He, he was uh, bruised for our transgressions. Right? He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace fell upon him. Right? We, we know these words very well. And they so clearly are fulfilled by Jesus Christ that when this man is reading these verses, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb before his shear is silent. So he opened out his mouth. Who's he talking about here, himself or someone else? Oh, I wish I would get that question, right? Let me tell you who he's talking about. It's so plain. And the fact that this is what he's reading when Philip shows up at the chariot. Oh, I can explain that, right? God is working in the the timing and the proximity to a body of water at the moment of his belief for the purpose of baptism. And we know. Most importantly of all, that God is at work in the Ethiopian's believing response to the gospel because Romans 1.16 tells us the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When somebody believes and repents of their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ, we know without a doubt that they did that because the gospel of God was at work. The Holy Spirit was applying the truth of the gospel to that heart. Convicting of sin, as Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would do. That it is the Spirit who will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. God is at work in this man's heart. And at the end of the day, this is one of the most important things for us to remember in our efforts to share the good news and as we consider our mission in the world, God alone is the one who saves. God is the one who saves, which frees us from the pressure of the sort of perfect sales pitch of the need to sort of close the deal. I haven't succeeded unless I've gotten somebody on their knees repenting of sins and trusting in Jesus right there. That's not up to us. It's ours to be faithful witnesses. It's his to be a mighty savior. And it's that plain. All we can do is tell the story of Jesus, just like Philip does here to this Ethiopian. And it's God's work in the heart, invisible to us, to draw a sinner to repentance and faith in Christ. And the passage ends with Philip's sort of next assignment. Look at verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. 
So Philip just sort of disappears and shows up in Azotus, a coastal town. And once he's there, he goes, all right, I guess I'll just keep going and preaching the gospel to whoever I find that the Lord might put in my path. And he ends up in Caesarea, which is apparently where he settles and camps because about 20 years later, we meet Philip again in Acts chapter 21. And by that time, he even has the nickname Philip the Evangelist. That's a pretty good moniker. And so God removes him, puts him in a new place, and Philip just continues the mission that he's given him to tell the good news of Jesus. And the the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. Praise God. The last principle that that I'll share with you in closing is this. The gospel of Jesus is bigger than our barriers. The gospel of Jesus is bigger than our barriers. If you just look at the one story of this one man, the wideness of the gospel is so clear and beautiful. God's grace in the gospel was sufficient for an ethnic other, right? We've, we've gone beyond the boundaries of ethnic uh, Israel. This man is not a Jew, but a black-skinned Ethiopian. God says, I want him. God says, I can save him. The gospel is is wide enough. It's sufficient for every ethnic group. There is no boundary that keeps a person away. The the, the, The grace of God in the gospel is sufficient for a sexually broken person. That's important to see and to know. This was a eunuch who had been... Uh, sort of forcibly removed, the the ability to reproduce removed from him, right? And so he is sexually broken. How many people in our world today are sexually broken people? 100% of them at some level, right? And we live particularly in a culture that is very confused about sexuality and what it means. The gospel is big enough for sexually confused and sexually broken and sexually erring people. The grace of Jesus can reach them. The gospel was sufficient for a government official. I don't know if that surprises you. You might be like, I know that the the gospel is powerful, but man, ain't no way he can reach some of those cats, right? He's a treasurer of a queen. He's a high up guy. Got a lot of power, a lot of money, probably wealthy. Didn't matter. God saves him. God says, I want him, right? The gospel of Jesus is big enough. It's wide enough for anyone. There is no social, economic, racial, religious boundary that the gospel of Jesus can't break us through in bringing sinners to himself. You know, I, I can't help but wonder if as the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from Isaiah, I wonder if he, he may have read just a little bit further And come to chapter 56 and read these words. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. 
I wonder if he read those verses and thought, that's for me. The gospel of Jesus is for me. Friends, there are no man-made boundaries, ethnic, sexual, positional, or otherwise, that are strong enough to dam up the flowing river of God's love in Jesus. What prevents me from being baptized? Only unbelief. That's it. That's the only thing that can stand in the way of a sinner meeting Jesus. It's just unbelief. If you will confess to God that you are a sinner in need of his forgiving grace and place your trust in Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose from the dead, naming him Lord and King over your life, you will be saved. Let's pray.